Welcome to the Canon Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Tim Emmett, the lead pastor at Canon, and I hope that this message will help you take your next step with Jesus as he leads us from death to life, from sorrow to joy, from the world as it is to the world as it will be. Thanks for joining us. When I was in seventh grade, I watched a preacher burn a Bible in church during church, during a service of worship. It wasn't my church. It was a church on TV. Some of you probably remember Ernest Ainsley. He was a famous, somewhat infamous television preacher. I don't know why he showed up on our family TV from time to time. I don't think my parents were especially devoted to Ernest Ainsley. In fact, I know that they weren't. I suspect my father turned him on for for sort of entertainment purposes. He was like a preacher from another planet. He had a very kind of interesting voice. Um, He said things we never heard in our local United Methodist Church. But I remember one time when I was in seventh grade, and I know it was seventh grade because I had to look up when this happened, he burned a Bible in church. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is the Bible he burned was the Reader's Digest Condensed Bible. Some of you may remember Reader's Digest magazine. They published condensed books, adaptations of books, and at one point in 1982, they published a condensed version of the Bible. Some kind of heralded that. They said it was a, you know, it was well done and it might open the Bible to non-readers of the Bible. Oral Roberts actually said, you know, he celebrated that. He thought it was a good thing. But Ernest Ainsley was one of many who said it was awful. It was terrible. It didn't matter to him that the intent really was to help owners of the Bible to become readers of the Bible. The Bible, as you may know, is the number one best-selling book year in and year out every single year. But although it sells really well, it's not read that widely. And so that was the intention, right? To kind of produce a version of the Bible that might be a little more accessible, uh, a little more uh, uh, user-friendly for modern readers of the Bible. Because, you know, and, and so, but, but Ernest Ainsley was outraged, right? Because words have been taken out of the Bible. So that's why he wanted to make clear in dramatic fashion that he did not support this Bible. So he burned a copy of it in his sanctuary on a Sunday morning. Now, if we're honest, Let's be honest. If we've grown up around the church or in the church, we all have a condensed version of the Bible in our hearts and our minds, right? There are passages that we come back to again and again. There are words, there are verses, there are phrases, there are images that have been a faith-nurturing, life-giving to us, and they are kind of the Bible within the Bible for us. If you have not grown up in the Christian faith, if you're really, if you have just kind of a passing acquaintance with the Bible or very little at all, that's totally okay. I'm just saying that for those of us who've kind of grown up around the faith and have, a, a, you know, kind of a longer relationship with the Bible, we already have kind of a Bible within the Bible, a condensed version of the Bible, and because some have been, some passages have been more meaningful to us. But also because some are confusing, right? Some just seem strange, and some, if we're honest, seem deadly, dull, boring. I'm not insulting the Bible, I'm just acknowledging that for us as contemporary readers of the Bible, some stuff doesn't quite communicate to us the way it did to others. Not surprisingly, some of the passages that did not make it into the condensed version of the Bible were the genealogies. 
the so-and-so beget so-and-so who beget so-and-so who beget so-and-so. You get a family tree, multiple places in the Bible. It shows up, especially in the book of Genesis, but then also in Chronicles, and at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. And for modern readers, the genealogies are deadly, dull, boring. They're kind of a big snooze. And we don't understand why they are there, and it's tempting to skip over them. Aren't you excited to know that during Advent at Canon Church, we will not skip over the genealogy of Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew? Not only will I preach on the genealogy of Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew this morning, but you'll hear it again next week and the next week after that. Three times we're spending the whole season of Advent in the genealogy of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. This has been attempted very rarely in the whole history of Christianity, but... I believe, and I want to promise to you that the genealogy of Jesus, when we look at it a little bit with ancient eyes, we see that it's actually anything but deadly dull boring. It's thrilling, it's artistic, it's deep, and it's moving. And so despite the risk inherent in reading a genealogy in public in worship, when the doors are not locked and you can leave at any time you want to, I'm going to read the genealogy of Jesus from the gospel according to Matthew. Would you please stand for the reading of the gospel? An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Aram, Aram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Period. Everybody take a deep breath. Now, you should already know when we get to King David, that's a big deal. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile or deportation to Babylon. Period. Everybody take a deep breath. We're two-thirds of the way through. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah, period. Everybody take a deep, deep breath. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. In 
In the film, The Water Diviner, Russell Crowe portrays an Australian farmer, Joshua Connor, whose three sons enlist with the Anzac troops in World War I. Uh, the Anzac troops were soldiers from Australia and New Zealand who fought with the British in World War I. All of them, all three sons, were together at the Battle of Gallipoli, and anyone who knows anything about World War I knows that Gallipoli was, uh, 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 <laughs> was a catastrophe for the British and for the Allies. Uh, the the Battle of Gallipoli took place in the Straits of Dardanelles, um, and which is near modern-day Turkey, and the intent was to push through the Straits of the Dardanelles and then attack Constantinople, sort of taking Turkey out of the war. But the, the assault, the amphibious assault, um, was poorly planned and poorly executed, and as a result, over 120,000 uh, Allied soldiers, British and their allies, uh, were lost including the three sons of Russell, I'm sorry, of Russell Crowe, of Joshua Connor. They were missing in action, but everyone knew that meant that they were presumed dead and almost certainly dead. Their bodies just had not been found. Four years after that battle, Joshua Connor took it upon himself to travel to Gallipoli. His wife had died, but one of his promises to her is that he would find their son's remains and bring them back home where he would bury them next to her in the family graveyard. The movie is called The Water Diviner because he was a water diviner. Uh, in this country, sometimes those people are called water witches, whether or not they're male or female. They have a sort of a strange ability to discern water beneath the earth, even in dry places. And somehow this sort of preternatural ability to discover water in dry places was also related then to a sort of sixth sense that he had. He makes use of these odd abilities to try and find his, his son's remains. He lands after a three-month journey in Istanbul and from there bribes a fishing boat captain to take him down to Gallipoli in the Straits of Dardanelles against the wishes of the British army who were there trying to properly dispose, uh, lay to rest their war dead. He possessed nothing but his eldest son's diary and knowledge of the day on which his sons disappeared. He was convinced, nonetheless, that he could somehow find them and bring them back home. There's a Turkish officer who was actually present at the battle on the other side, who is the only one in Gallipoli who takes Joshua Connor and his quest seriously. And in one exchange with a British officer, he asks the officer why he, the British officer, will not help Joshua Connor. The British officer sees him as a nuisance. He's someone who's in the way, and he actually makes arrangements to get him back on a ship and back to Constantinople and out of their way. Why won't you help this father? The British officer replies, well, I can't go about helping every father who won't stay put and let the authorities handle the matter. The Turkish officer, however, replies, yes, but he's the only father who came looking. He's the only father who came looking. The genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is, of course, about Jesus. It's about Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, or as Matthew puts it, the son of David and the son of Abraham. He wants to stress that Jesus is the long-promised, long-awaited son of David, through whom God will rescue and heal the whole world. It is, of course, about Jesus, but it also is 
all about God, the Father who came searching, not just for people far away and long ago, but for you and for me right here and right now. The genealogy of Jesus isn't just about the family tree of Jesus. It's about an unexpected journey. The most unexpected journey of all. The journey of God. Christmas, if you think about it, brings with it lots of unexpected journeys. In the Gospel of Matthew alone, Joseph and Mary take an unexpected journey to Bethlehem when uh, Mary is pregnant. And then once Jesus is born, they take a very unexpected journey into Egypt, fleeing from Herod, who is, in, who is searching, actively searching for the child, for the one who's been born king of the Jews. You may know, you may remember that Herod was, you know, according to the Romans, the king of the Jews, but he wasn't born king of the Jews. He wasn't even Jewish. He was an Amean. He's like a cousin of the Jews. He was a warlord. He was a great general the kind of person that the Romans loved to do business with, and so they made him king of the Jews. But he always knew he wasn't really Jewish and didn't really have an authentic claim to that crown and that title. And so when the Magi from the East show up telling Herod and his whole court, we're looking for one who's been born king of the Jews, he's really interested. And so after Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph take the baby, and flee to Egypt. It's an unexpected and, in their case, unwelcome journey. The Magi from the East themselves, that's an unexpected journey. They're gazing at the night sky. They're studying the stars. They're looking for signs of things divine and significant and earth-shaking and world-altering. And they see a star which speaks to them of the birth of a son, the birth of a king, a king of the Jews. And that's not just, as far as they can tell, good news for the Jews, but for all, and so they make an unexpected journey west to find this child and pay homage, show honor to him. Christmas brings with it unexpected journeys. If we step outside the Gospel of Matthew into the Gospel according to Luke, we may think about shepherds, you know, keeping watch over their flock by night, They're just doing what they do every day, every night. They're caring for sheep when suddenly angels appear to them and tell them about the birth of a Savior, a son of David, son of God, born for them, and they take an unexpected journey from their fields to Bethlehem to see the child. Christmas brings with it multiple unexpected journeys. And that shouldn't surprise us because the whole history of redemption is one unexpected journey after another. Abraham is living in, in um, he's living with his family in his father's household in, in Mesopotamia, kind of what we think of as Iraq, when he is called to leave the only land he's ever known, leave his father's household, go to a land that God will show him. Why? Because God is going to bless them with a huge family, make them a great nation, give them a land of their own, and through Abraham and Sarah and their progeny, their family, God would bless all the other families on the face of the earth. And so Abraham and Sarah, their whole household, uproot and move, go on an unexpected journey 
to a land they've never seen and do not know. And once they are there, they end up going into Egypt and then coming back home again. The genealogy of Jesus, as it kind of goes through the drum roll of people who are in the family tree of Jesus, there's one journey after another. David becomes king and yet spends decades in the wilderness on the run. He's the, uh, he's the anointed king of Israel. He's the next king of Israel, but the present king of Israel does not like the competition. Not surprising. And so David spends decades on the run in the wilderness. One unexpected, anxious journey after another. David eventually does become king, and Israel kind of reaches its pinnacle of power and influence and wealth. And then after David dies, it all goes downhill. One unfaithful king after another. That's part of what would have been in the ears and on the minds and in the hearts of first century readers of the Gospel of Matthew when they hear about all of these, these forebears of Jesus. There's one bad king after another. There's some good ones woven in, but they're the minority. They're the exception to the rule. The rule is we're not faithful to Yahweh. We're not faithful to God. We worship other gods. We oppress our own people. And so the whole people, they, their story spirals downward. And so although they are the people of God, a holy people, a chosen nation, a kingdom of priests, they go through the trauma of exile, the deportation, which Matthew mentions, and he underlines. There's an unexpected journey into exile. And it seems like their journey might end right there. Their story could end in exile. Their story could end in Babylon. Living in a strange place among their enemies. And yet God has another unexpected journey in store for them. He brings them home from Babylon. Brings them back to the Holy Land and promises, I'm not done yet. You turned away from me, but I haven't turned away from you. I'm not done yet. I will come back to you. And through you and the Messiah, the son of David, you've been waiting for, I will fulfill my promises to Abraham, a great people, and a, a, a holy people in a holy place. And through Abraham and his family, through Sarah and her progeny, God would bless all the families on the face of the earth. And so the genealogy is Matthew telling his readers that through all of it, God has been at work, and Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. He is the key person. This is the turning point in the story. This is the destination of this journey of God with his people for the redemption of the world, the salvation of the world. And it's not a journey from earth to heaven. It's a surprising journey, an unexpected journey from heaven to earth. Jesus has come not so much to get us into heaven as to get heaven into us and on the earth. Jesus has come to lead us through the world as it is toward the world as it will 
be. That is the most unexpected journey of all. Unless you know the God of Israel. The gods of their neighbors, the, the gods, of, you know, the, the pagan gods really didn't do forgiveness. They really didn't do redemption, salvation, healing, hope. They did judgment. The best you could hope for was to kind of placate them, to offer some sacrifices, to get on their good side and maybe get their blessing or avoid their curse. But the God of Israel and the Father of Jesus, different kind of God, this God forgives, this God heals, this God sets free. This God created all things and all things were good, but then all things were cast down from that goodness because of our rebellion against God. And yet God chose not to wipe his hands of us and walk away from us, but instead get even closer to us. It is the most unexpected journey of all. The journey of God himself coming to dwell with us as one of us. To bring all of us back home again, he is the father who came. Did you hear that they've canceled Christmas in Bethlehem this year? Bethlehem is in the West Bank. And because of the violence, the bloodshed, they've decided that they'll keep Christmas in their hearts and in their churches. But they won't light a Christmas tree in Nativity Square and they won't have Christmas parades. It's not the time for that kind of celebration and that kind of rejoicing. It is a time for them to celebrate the gift of God's Son and the hope that He brings. But this is a season to weep with those who weep. And so Christians in Palestine, in the West Bank and also in Gaza have said they won't do parades They won't do public celebrations. They'll keep Christmas in their hearts, in their homes, and in their churches. But they're going to grieve with those who grieve. It occurred to me, reading that, totally understand that. It occurred to me that God is the only being who can every single day, at every single moment, both Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And the Bible encourages us to do that, to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And for us, limited as we are, we do one or the other, not both at the same time. But I believe, based on what Jesus shows us of God, that the one true God shares every laugh and every tear, every day, all the time. God is in every house of mourning and in every wedding. Because God has taken the most unexpected of all journeys to come here, to come be with us as one of us, and then with us and as one of us to walk with us, lead us 
through this world as it is, both beautiful and broken, toward the world as it will be. A world of love, a world of peace, a world of joy. So this Christmas, the genealogy of Jesus really isn't just about Jesus' family tree. It's an invitation to join this journey with Jesus, to be part of this unexpected journey, the journey of God. Through the world as it is, toward the world as it will be, because God came looking. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we give thanks for Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Mary, the son of Joseph, the son of God, God with us as one of us, walking with us through days of laughter and days of grief, through days of light and joy, darkness and grief in it all, through it all, you are leading us always through the world as it is, toward the world as it will be. We are so grateful to be on this unexpected journey together with you. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We hope that this message will help you have a great week by helping you walk in faith, hope, and love. Looking for more information about Canon? Check us out on the web at canonchurch.org or follow us on Facebook at Canon UMC and Instagram at Canon Church 2424.